are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by St. Joe River Bows. If you're looking for a custom longbow or recurve, then St. Joe River Bows has you covered. St. Joe's is a family-owned company that specializes in traditional bows for the entire family. Plus their forward handle design, powerful limbs, and unique wood and color combinations make St. Joe's the perfect choice for the budding or experienced archer or bow hunter. Tracy offers bow options for all members of the family from the youngest to the oldest, and they even offer a trade-in program on all youth bows so that as the little ones outgrow their bow, they can trade them in and use that towards the purchase of a bow that better fits their growing needs. And for listeners of the Traditional Outdoors podcast, David and Tracy are going to include a St. Joe River Bows t-shirt with any new bow purchased. Just mention that you heard about them while listening to this podcast. So when you're ready for a new bow, be sure to check out their website at stjoeriverbows.com or give Tracy a call at 517-617-3658 and be sure to tell them Traditional Outdoors sent you. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel. I'm running solo, doing an a in-person interview. Don't get to do too many of these, but I'm, I'm sitting here with Mr. Jerry Russell. How are you, Jerry? Doing pretty good. Now, for those that, that don't know Jerry, uh, Jerry, you run, a, you run a guide service, and you do a, a good bit of, it's not really land management. You really do more of, of managing hunting leases for uh, leasing out to other hunters, right? Yeah, we do a bunch of that in central Georgia um, and focus mostly, most, mostly on deer and hogs and um, around north, north of Macon. Um, it's all traditional hunting on those particular leases. So it puts us in contact with a lot of really cool people, a lot of the guys that we share the same philosophies and, and hunting strategies with. Um, and then the surrounding groups around us down there are all archery as well. So it's some really big tracts of land, 1,000, 1,500-acre tracts. And so management, just through virtue of traditional archery, uh, makes for some pretty big whitetails. And I've been I've been hunting on one of those with you now. I think this will be the fifth year yep. since I started hunting down there. A couple of different tracks that I that I actually hunt on. We had we had one they decided to drop a bomb on it looked like and just wiped out the the hardwoods on it. But uh, see a see a lot of deer and a lot of big deer. Yep, uh, you had a good year <laughs> this past year. <laughs> yeah, a really nice buck, and then one with a with a primitive bow. Um, yeah, I just actually returned from those properties, and uh, it's looking good. Uh, trail camera are showing some really, really big bucks and just some tremendous, tremendous hogs. So I've got, in fact, I really want to get down there. I've got uh, right the last day I hunted, and I don't know if you know exactly where. I know you know a general area where I shot that, that the biggest buck that I took this year. But, you know, it's always funny, and I want to get into that. You know, we're, I think we're going to spend most of this discussion talking about bears but it it never ceases to amaze me every time i trail a deer unless i see it go down in sight every time i track a deer or bear i end up learning something in the course of that track that i apply to you know where i'm gonna hunt next year and that particular buck he ran towards you know the gate where i always go in right there at the creek he ran towards that little that little road that that 
heads into the power line. And I had never noticed it. And now that I know it's there, when I'm driving in and out, there's a, I, when you first look at it, you think it was cows because there's cows in that property too because it's inside a pasture. But it's not. It's it's deer that are using it. And they're basically, I think the bucks are actually coming down early in the morning and crossing right there close to the road because nobody's hunting it. And they're, I think they're betting on some of those little uh, wood lots on the other side of the creek that nobody has that or nobody hunts really. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's probably years and years before anybody penetrates those wood lots. And by design, I don't go over there because they're really unhuntable. Even if you could get in there without spooking the deer, you got to get out without spooking the deer. So we kind of leave them as kind of a sanctuary situation. But yeah, the those deer will bed in, in impossible to believe places like that. Little islands, you know, sometimes maybe fifty by a hundred. Mm-hmm. Maybe smaller than that. Um, my son killed one right where you're talking about, right over there in those islands. A, a tremendous old buck, seven or eight year old buck. So um, they're there, but they know where people, where humans just don't frequent. Well, I set up and I set a camera right, right on the the side of the road at that little clearing, pointing back up in that select cut where where they're coming down. So I'm anxious to see what I catch on that. And you can't. It's impossible to hunt that, but I think what you can do is I can go back and somewhere between where I was hunting and where you still got that one stand that's like 45 feet up in the tree. The nosebleed. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I will be back in there hunting at that section again, and it's really kind of funny because this is the first year I've really hunted that 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 section because the the section you've got carved off from me you know it's two it's it's a north i call it the north side and the south side i've been telling you to hunt that for yeah. at least two years but the sign is so good on the back on the back side too yeah yeah but i've seen some really really big bucks in there some monsters yeah. well, in fact the biggest buck that we've ever seen on those two properties that i hunt down there was seen right in there um so there's there's some giants no doubt about it well it's kind of funny i know and I think you said you had a picture or two of that buck, but you know, I had been running four or five cameras. And it's what we're talking about. My section of that's probably 80, 85 acres. And I had five cameras on it all year last year, and I never got a picture of that buck. Yeah, I think most of them frequent the, the, the old select cut, which is now six or seven years old. So it's got a lot of security cover in there. So I had four or five mature bucks in a three-day period walk in front of one of my stands down there so it's they like that thick stuff and where i'm at it's just it's jungle thick yeah most of what i'm hunting is a little bit i know i've never walked through that area but i know uh the what is it the the back corner of that property or the section of mine that's closest to uh 75 that's uh back on the bun road side of that Anyway, I've hunted back on the backside of that pond, and I can see up into this section that you're hunting, and I don't see how you're even hunting that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's thick. I like the thick stuff. Well, let's let's talk about bears a little bit. So I know you, you actually guide for bears in Canada, and you've been doing that for how long? Uh, I think it's close to nine years now. Um, we have a, a partnership with a, 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 a Canadian outfitter, and uh, I went up there many, many years ago hunting with my son. Actually, he was 13 years old, I think, and, and watched him take his first uh, black bear with a recurve bow up there. And and uh, just love that pro- the province of Quebec. It's I've hunted all over Canada, literally from end to end. But 
I love the, uh, the the province of Quebec. I guess more than any of them. Alberta'd be a, a close second, I guess. But I love the culture. I love the people. They're very friendly. Um, and a lot of people will tell you Quebec's not the place to shoot a big bear, but I can tell you they're wrong. <laughs> in some cases, I would say that that's generally true, but the area that we hunt in particular is over 1 million uh, contiguous acres, and then it's bordered by two other areas that are well over a million each. So uh, we take a very, very small number of bears each year off this property, and uh, it's just it's heaven on earth for a bear hunter. And I keep saying I'm going to make it up there, and I haven't yet. But as we were talking, walking into your house here before we started recording, Bella graduates high school this year, and she'll be heading off to college um, this summer. So that changes a few things for me. So um, I'm thinking next year might be the year, but then you just told me you you may be scaling it back to just just one hunt next year. Is yeah, we right? just do one. When we did it this year, too, as well. We're going to do one group this year. Um, if anybody's ever visited our website, which is russelloutdoorguides.com, you see that we do everything. And when I say everything, we hunt everything that Georgia has to offer, a little bit of what Canada has to offer, delving a little bit into Alaska and then even into Africa. We do that for a purpose. I don't ever want what I do for a living, if I guess if you could even call that a job, to be work for me. I don't ever want anybody to see in my eyes that I don't have the passion just like they do when they show up to hunt with me. So we try to spread it out as much as possible. I mean, just in Georgia, deer, bear, hogs, turkey, bow fishing, striped bass fishing, a little bit of upland hunting, um, and a whole lot more. And then of course, uh, Canada, we go, we take, uh, people down to Florida, duck hunt, Missouri for snow geese. So we do it all. We, we just want to keep that passion going. Um, so I don't want the bear hunt, which is physically, I know I was going to say arguably, it's not, it is the toughest thing you will ever do is guide bear hunters. You pretty much go whatever period you're there, you go that entire time without sleep, really hard work, skinning two to four bears a day, tracking, dragging through that rugged, uh, country, getting those bears out of the woods for the bow hunters. Um, so it's tough. Um, so I want to, I want to keep the passion alive. So we keep very, very small groups, um, anywhere from seven to, uh, 12 hunters a year. That's it. Um, and while we certainly cater to the traditional archery hunters, we'll take anybody, you know, any legal weapon. We just want people to have a good time. We've had crossbow hunters, um, probably 90% trad bow guys. So we'll get you close. Um, your chances at uh, taking a bear as close to 100% as you'll ever hunt anywhere just by sheer virtue of the numbers. Um, it's not unusual to hear or see, um, you know, eight to 10 bears in a night. Um, and it's quite common to see three to five. And those are all going to be generally, I don't like anybody to take a shot over nine yards. So, um, and oftentimes we'll put people in ground blinds or just in brush blinds and they'll take the bears at five yards from the ground. So it's invigorating. It's exciting. And, and I think a lot of people have the misconception that going to a foreign country, Canada, is a big hassle, so they want to stay close. But I, I can say without a moment's hesitation that hunting Canada is, uh, is just like hunting any U.S. state. It's, it's no more complex for uh, weapon entry, even if it's a gun. 
It's not a, a complex thing to do. Um, it's not a hassle. In our particular bear camp, you can either drive or fly into Montreal, and then we're just two hours away, all by paved road. And then once you enter the reserve, the roads are pretty decent um, all the way into camp. And then once you get to camp, we take it from there. We do all the transportation and incredible lodging and some really awesome rustic cabins along a river. And then just phenomenal food from uh, our camp chef. Well, awesome. I actually, and again, I, I hope to experience it very soon. I know, uh, in fact, uh, Tom Jurgensen has... We've been talking about trying to do it together, so we'll see how it plays out. If we, you know, may have to plan it out a year or two in advance or something, if you, if you have that much interest. But uh, it is definitely something that that I want to do. Um, and you know, it's it, so everybody listening will probably get to hear Jerry more than once because just in that little sentence there, there's there's several things that you touched on that I would actually like us to to circle back on later at another time and do separate podcasts on. And you didn't even mention the, the tracking business that you kind of do uh, during hunting season all the time. I know that takes a lot of your time with the, the tracking dog as well. Um, so I've, I've watched you for several years. I know how busy you stay and I know the passion that you have for all of it, which is main reason I've been wanting to try to get with you and sit down and talk about some of this stuff. And, you know, the, the weapon, the, the weapon thing, as has been said on the podcast several times, I don't know if you've listened to many of the episodes or not, Jerry, but we, you know, traditional outdoors from day one was really more about the mindset than it was about a weapon. So it's, it's that, you know, in, enjoying the time outdoors for the right reasons, which is about embracing the experiences as it is about whatever weapon you decide to, to go afield with. So, it fits right into our discussion here. So I know you are also very passionate about bear hunting uh, here in Georgia, which is a lot different than than your 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 Canada hunts. I know you're, you're hunting Canada, you're setting baits and you're hunting baits, but we don't have that luxury here in Georgia. Uh, and it really it really steps up the, the the challenge. I know this past year I spent more time focusing on or trying to focus specifically on on uh, on bear and i actually had some success um but it's tough and it kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier about the you know tracking that that one buck and finding some place same thing happened with one of the bears which we've talked about on the show i'm not going to go back into that it did not have a happy ending and i'm still upset about it but in the time we were trying to ascertain exactly what happened with that bear I actually discovered more and learned more about bear habitat and bear behaviors as far as sleeping and so forth. But <clears throat> I'm a I'm a novice, so I want to I want to ask you and dive in. Let you let you start talking about, it and I'll probably have some follow up questions for you. But hunting bears without bait, where do you where do you start when you're going out and trying to trying to key in on do you try to key in on a bear or you just try to key in on key bear habitat where you think you can narrow your, your, or increase your odds? I think by, by virtue of, of what, what I'm about to discuss, you'll see that you're, you're keying in on a specific bear some of the time. Some of the time you're not. You're hunting general hunting bears, but just for the audience's sake of understanding, there's three distinct populations of bears in Georgia. We're going to be talking about the north, the mountains of North Georgia. Um, very, very large um, area. 
just the Chattahoochee National Forest <clears throat> is about 750,000 acres of public access land. Um, middle Georgia has a small bear population, and then southern Georgia in the swamps. Southeast Georgia primarily has its own population. That's distinctly different uh, hunting methods, so we'll, we'll stick to the North Georgia bears for this discussion. Um, the bears in Georgia, um, I would I almost want to call it a sleeper state because a lot of people don't understand just how prolific the bear population is in Georgia. It's staggering. Um, it is, it, we have one of the, uh, the most, uh, I guess the, one of the longest bear seasons and you get two bears and I think you can up for almost five months for the bears in Georgia. So no shortage of bears and no shortage of time to chase them. But over that five-month period, um, how you hunt them changes radically, sometimes day-to-day. So if we start early in the season, I would focus, um, if you have the luxury of hunting, having private property that I do um, with corn on it, that's where your bears are going to be. Um, our season generally starts the first week or so of September, around anywhere from the 6th to the 10th or 11th, somewhere like that. Those first few days, and it's only the first few days of that bear season, they're going to be in the corn. And when I say in the corn, if you have a remote cornfield that butts up to a good, uh, you know, some good security cover, some, some uh, rugged mountain terrain, bears will pour down in the evenings into these cornfields. It's not uncommon to see four, five, six, seven bears in one small 10-acre cornfield at a time. Um, so hunting them is really not that difficult because you find an entry trail back up into the woods about 100 yards. And you do that because... If you don't get that bear, you want to be able to get out of there without disrupting the bear in the corn. If you try to stalk them in the corn, it's really difficult. Um, they make a lot of noise, but they're, once you spook them out of that corn, you, you, all, the big bears are going to be gone. You're going to be stunk hunting the little guys. But So hunt, hunt 50, 60 to 100 yards away from the cornfields and catch them coming into the corn in the evening. And then possibly, if you can get to that same position, catch them coming out of the corn in the morning. Generally, the big bears will be gone right at first light, but the younger bears will stay. When I say younger, I'm talking, you know, the 150, 200 pounders and under are going to stay into the corn, sometimes up till 9 in the morning. So you can catch them coming out that way. Um, you can also climb much higher on those trails and, you know, maybe a quarter mile or a half mile away and catch the bears at a distance from the corn, the bigger ones. Uh, those trails are easy to find. Um, generally, a bear, when he leaves the field, he'll try to carry corn with him. So you can actually find corn husk, sometimes up to a half mile, three-quarters of a mile from these fields. Um, where it gets tricky, and everybody says, if they want to hunt with me in Georgia, where are we going to be hunting? I said, I don't have a clue. And the reason I say that is, is the tannic acid level controls the bear uh, behavior. Um, and... And when I say it controls it, when that tannic acid, tannic acid in the acorn crop hits a very specific point where those acorns are palatable enough to eat, for a bear to shove them in his mouth, those bears will abandon that corn like the plague. Overnight, within 36 hours, you'll have five, six, eight bears in a field. Every day they'll be there. And then overnight they'll be gone and they will not come back to that corn. Um, when that acid gets right in those acorns and they're able to, to scarf them down, the white oaks specifically is what I'm talking about, they'll abandon those and they'll start climbing. The acorns are still almost a month away from dropping, but the bears have a, an innate sense of, of knowing when they can eat those acorns and then they're going to start climbing. 
um, they'll climb these trees and people are amazed to see it when we take them back in there. But they'll climb upwards of 100 feet and feed in the tops of these trees. Um, at this time, they're hard to find, but easy to kill. And the reason I say that is it's hard to find that tree because that bear will eat out of one tree until they exhaust that acorn supply and then it'll move to the other. Um, that's generally about two to four days, depending on the size of the tree. Um, if you find the tree, they're easy to find. They're easy to see what you found when you find it, because obviously they make a, a lot of uh, they make a lot of noise when they're climbing, and then they just destroy the trunk as they're going up. They'll also snap the limbs off. So as you're cruising through the timber, you just look up, and you can look mountain to mountain, valley to valley, and when you see a lot of brown foliage in a tree. That's bears feeding in that area, so you want to investigate that area. Um, find that tree and don't disturb the bear um, by finding that tree. In other words, you want to ease in there and try to find it. But when you do, all you got to do is set up a stand or even just stand beside the tree in a clump of brush. And that bear is going to come back. If he's still on that food source, you have a tremendous chance to take that bear. Now, another method of hunting him is just to ease through the woods very, very quietly. Um, basically slip hunting and then listen for the bears up in the trees it's you can hear them gosh sometimes up a half mile away when you hear those limbs snapping you're going to stalk that sound you're going to get under that tree and uh, you know evaluate the bear if it's not a female or if it's a, it's a boar big enough for you to shoot um, a female with cubs I mean um, if it's a boar that you want to take you're going to you're just going to sit quietly do not let that bear hear you or see you because he'll come out of that tree like a fireman um, and you will not get a shot otherwise he'll come down the tree very very slowly and then he'll almost always 100 percent of the time just about will pause at the base of that tree and look around and that's when you're going to take your shot but if he sees you the game is over um, he'll you'll hear his toenails click three times from 100 feet and he'll be on the ground and be gone <laughs> before you can even react um, i've had several people that have shot him in the trees and and sometimes you can get, especially up on tops of the mountains where you have the stunted oaks, the shot may only be 30 or 40 feet up. And so it's definitely possible. Um, and that's not a bad shot to take, you know, if, if, you, if you can slip in quietly enough. And generally you can. When the bear's up there, he's making so much noise that he's really not paying that much of attention. Um, you still have to play the wind, though. A lot of people don't understand that when, you're, when that bear's in that tree, it can still smell you. You got updraft, so... Watch your thermals and, and obviously watch the wind on the back of your neck. And when you're talking about seeing these these bears up in the tree, I, we, I guess we should probably set that that picture. I mean, our minimum size is 75 pounds, that's which correct. is not a big bear at all. No, um, that's a cup. But we've got some we've got some big bears. I yeah, mean, George's got some <clears throat> giants. Um, they've I think two years ago or last year they killed one over 700. So some big bears. And I've gotten obviously. I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a novice, but I've gotten bears on camera, and you know one of the areas that I that I hunt quite a bit. And obviously, these bears are being fed very well by that uh, lawyer and doctor. I don't know if it's a subdivision or a, a, a weekend getaway, but you know where I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, they feed those bears pretty good, but I mean, I've got I know I've had bears on cameras up there well in excess of 400 pounds, um, and the one. The two bears that I had opportunities at this year, <clears throat> one of them I would say I would guess it to probably be about 200 pounds, so probably around 150. 
the other one was a lot bigger. I mean, the the, the one that the river consumed um, that was a that was a big bear. Um, and he was he was actually feeding on red oak acorns, which surprised me a little bit. It was a little bit later in the season, but he was vacuuming red oak acorns that were just raining out of the trees. Um, but we didn't have a good white oak acorn crop this no. year. Last year was a, a pretty past dismal. Year. Yeah. Um, that's another thing about when people want to, to hunt Georgia or book hunt with me or hunt it themselves on the public access areas. You just don't know what the acorn crop, even if it shows in the early summer that it's going to be good, it can have a massive failure. Um, Which was what happened last year. Yeah. We had we had a lot of acorns in, in May, June, well, yeah. June. Uh, and you know what's funny is uh, I actually hunted quite a bit on um, I'm drawing up Wilson Shoals this year up in Banks County, and the white oaks were loaded up there. Yeah, um, yeah it was very so sporadic. And, and that's a 30-minute, well, an hour's drive between the two locations. So you have to get out and do your scouting. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a feast or famine thing, but it can it can you really want a middle of the road acorn crop because if you have no acorns, the bears are dispersed. If you have acorns everywhere, if acorns are on every tree, every ridge elevation, every elevation, it's a needle in a haystack to find those feed trees. Um, the for the hunter's sake, but not for the bears, the best thing you can have is a is a reasonably a reasonably quality acorn year, but at a very specific um, elevation. In other words, all the acorns are between 2,800 and, and 3,000. If they're in that band, you literally can take a GPS and walk that band in elevation, and it's 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 a yellow brick road for bear hunting. The bears will all be in that band, so it compresses everything down. Three, two or three years ago, we had... We had acorns from a thousand feet to thirty-eight hundred, and finding a bear, I walked. I know I put sixty miles down um, to find bears. I got on them, but it was the average Joe's not going to put in the time that I did. We're talking walking every day for miles, and if you've never hunted North Georgia, especially where I hunt, walking five miles there is the equivalent of walking uh, fifty in Iowa. <laughs> It's straight up and it's straight down um, and really, really rugged terrain. You know, we're not in the Rockies, but if you've never climbed um, mountainous terrain, Georgia, can it can kick your tail, uh, particularly when you got a bear on your back to carry out. So you have to be careful where you choose to shoot those things. And I have passed on many deer and a lot of bears just because I said, I'm not trying to get one out of here. It's just too rugged. And and I remember that year you you're talking about because mm-hmm. we talked about it quite a bit and um, I guess something else to throw in here when it's so our our you mentioned we had a long bear season if it's deer season it's bear season that's correct um, and I know <clears throat> the only time that year that you're talking about that you actually deer hunted was during the rut that's it <clears throat> the, the rest of the time you were chasing bears and you know I didn't know until this past year. Um, but you mentioned that about Iowa and you mentioned the Rockies. So I'll put a little, I'll put a little context in here from personal experience. So Tom and I hunted muleys in the bighorns. We were at 9,000 feet. And I would say on a, on an average day, we were probably gaining and losing, I don't know, anywhere from a thousand to 2000 feet, depending on where we were going. Nowhere near as challenging as the mountains here in Georgia, because you you had better footing for one. 
while there's you're gaining there's more elevation to gain and lose it's more gradual our stuff is i mean we've got places it's straight up if you yep. don't have something to to hold to grab hold, uh, onto and pull you're going around um so y- y- yeah don't don't let the mountains of georgia fool you they will they will kick your tail if you're yeah, not my, ready for my it. first experience was off of in the Cahutas of Georgia, which is right on the Tennessee border, and the and I should have known when we walked in on Tear Bridges Trail that it was going to be rugged. And my brother killed two hogs, and he was a little bitty guy at the time, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And getting those two pigs, which were not big, these were 80-pound hogs, but getting those two pigs from our little base camp back to where we had parked the truck was less than, as the crow flies, less than half mile but it was straight up 1800 feet and it took me a full day to get those two pigs out of that godforsaken canyon <laughs> and i swore i'd never go back to the cajadas and i don't know that i ever did but I, I am very picky about what i shoot and where i shoot it when i'm in those mountains for sure so that is that's always a thought uh and i'll be honest last starting two years ago i just started planning on you know, if it's if it's legal and I can do it, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it and bring it out uh, on my pack instead of trying to bring it out whole. Um, yeah, I keep a pack frame, uh, an <clears throat> external pack frame in my truck 100 percent of the time when I'm in the mountains. You, you're not gonna bring a, a you know a deer or a bear out in some of those places. You're not gonna do. Oh, it. you're not. It'd and, be a two day adventure yeah. in some places. And you can't you you can't especially like on the WMAs. You you know most of those during archery season, especially they're all gated. So you're walking. It's not uncommon to walk a mile, a mile and a half to some of the areas that I hunt. I know you. I, I know you put the miles on too. Now on the national forest land, you still can't use an ATV or anything like that. But I don't know if there's more access uh, road wise because I don't know. I'm not familiar. I've hunted national forest land a little bit, but I'll be honest. I'm, I I typically stick more to the WMAs, which I keep saying I'm gonna stop doing. Um, because they, because I only bow hunt, uh, once bow season ends, it leaves my public land options very limited around here. Um, and so I keep saying, I'm going to do the national forest and I just, I just haven't done it. I got to do, yeah, the, I got to exactly do a little bit of research. The opposite. I've, I've not done a mountain WMA hunt in over 20 years. Um, you can get lost in the national forest of North Georgia. Just, I mean, as we sit here at my house on Bear Lake, I'm literally, one and a half miles from the base of the mountains, right just to the north of us. And once you enter that line right there, you can go. You could walk for hours upon hours upon hours and never get to the other side of the National Forest. Right. So I have literally unlimited areas to hunt. Uh, it's very, very rugged. In some areas, you could go many, many, many miles without even a Forest Service road. So you can get lost back there without a GPS. You can certainly get turned around on, on some of those ridges. It's a lot of land, uh, a lot of pigs, a lot of deer. Well, few few deer after you leave the valleys, but a lot of hogs and a lot of a lot of bears. Tons and some, of bears. And some big hogs, too. Yep, lots of, lots of good hunting. You know, they're very nomadic in the mountains. Certainly not a place I would go to hunt hogs, but while you're chasing bears and and uh, getting a chance at a deer, you can definitely run across some good hog sign. The beauty of the hogs is they leave so much sign up there that once you're in them, you know you're in them. So you can start kind of focus on them a little bit better. 
a good a good friend of mine who and he actually uh, does a podcast. In fact, we just had him on on our podcast again, and I owe him an interview on his. Uh, Jason Samkowiak. I don't know if you he he does the traditional bow hunting wilderness podcast, but he came a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and uh, I met him up in Helen, and we hunted hogs up on uh, Chattahoochee WMA. Uh, tons of sign up there. Uh, I got into a small. Uh, actually, I only saw one until the wind shifted and they blew out. But it was multiple pigs up in some rhododendron, Mount Laurel, just hunkered down. And I got close enough for a shot, but the way the thing was laying, I couldn't see. I couldn't tell head from from butt. And by the time I, you know, could try to even think about taking a shot, wind shifted and they took out. But um, there's some. There's some big, big pigs and the, the, you know, that little track that you, um, came in and did the, uh, blood, the trail on that deer two or three years ago, that little track's only 500 acres. And la- this past season, I had opportunities at bear deer and pigs on that same little track. So it's really kind of, it, it, it it's kind of unique that you can, mm-hmm. you can hunt one spot and and you can see all kinds of wild you can basically see just about everything that's in georgia yeah. except gators i mean you're so it, it's it's in beautiful country yeah georgia is a just stunning stunning place to hunt i don't the diversity of georgia is i won't say that it's unmatched but there's not many states that you can go from these you know these nosebleed mountains to all the way to the coast I mean, we literally hunt from end to end, the bears, the deer, the hog, and the mountains, along with turkey, all the way through the Piedmont with the hogs, deer, and turkey, and then the alligators down on the southeastern side. Um, and for those the guys out there that have never been to southeast Georgia, lower Altamahal River and um, out in those big, big salt marshes, it is, it's unparalleled beauty. It's almost a primeval adventure to go down there to hunt. Um, so... A lot of public land down there as well for the guys listening. If you want to hunt hogs and you want to get on a bunch of hogs, that's the place. Southeast Georgia is just teeming with with public land and, and access to hogs. A lot of deer, too, and the alligator hunting down there. If you can draw that the coveted Georgia tag, which is a which is a draw-only tag, it takes you about three years, but it's certainly worth it. Um, there's lots of gators. Now, I'm going to back you up to the to the bear discussion a little bit more. So the first question I'm going to ask you is um, spring versus spring versus fall bear. So which do you prefer? Do you pre- I mean, do you prefer getting out and hunting them like we have to do here over, you know, hunting them like in, in the spring in Canada? Or Well, it's just such a different thing. Those that have never hunted over bear, you, you have to be careful judging it because in eastern Canada, without – Without hunting over bear, it is so insanely difficult to locate a bear up there. And then when you do, it's so difficult to judge that bear in the short period of time you have. And then, and then God forbid, you shoot a sow with, with little cubs. Um, baiting gives you the opportunity to look at a lot of bears. And then the, the numbers in where we hunt in Quebec are staggering. Um our zone that we hunted, they biologists say 750 to 1,000 bears just, just in that area. Um, it's just a different type of hunting. Um, if I guess if I had to pick a type of bear hunting to do, it would be, it'd be fall hunting in anywhere, but in Georgia in particular. Um, you know, once you they get out of the corn, which is kind of easy, it gets much more difficult. And then once those acorns start falling on the ground, 
everything changes again. That's where I was actually going. Yeah, so. so it changes. You know, you've got that you've got that three week window of opportunity, five or six to seven days in the corn, three weeks when they're in the trees, which makes them pretty easy to hunt if you can put the shoe leather down. And when I say the shoe leather, you're talking moving twenty to sixty miles. Um, sometimes more under average conditions till you can find a tree of walking. And then once they, well, the acorns come down, man, it, it becomes much, much more difficult. Um, you have to become adept at finding the sign. The bears don't leave a ton of sign. And, and when the entire ridge is covered in acorns, the bears can cruise and they can gobble. Now, if those acorns are falling everywhere, the bears can get nearly impossible to hunt because the hunters have now invaded the woods. The bears know it. And they're secretive creatures. So they're not going to leave that those rhododendron thickets, which are incredibly difficult to hunt. Um, when there's acorns inside the rhododendron thickets, they're not going to do it. So getting inside of there and hunting a bear and getting up on him is, wow, it goes to from, I don't know what the percentages are, but it's low. It's very, very difficult. The bears will not leave those the, the roadies in, uh, in the daytime. Uh, so it gets very, very difficult to hunt them. And the average person has no idea what you're talking about when you talk about these thickets. If you, it, Here's the deal on rhododendrons. The best way to describe them is if you had 10 octopus and you could petrify them and they were flailing their arms, that's what it's like trying to get through a rhododendron thicket. With a, with a recurve bow, with a quiver strap to it, it's like 100 people grabbing at your clothing, um, your bow, and then... And, and it, there's been places where I've gotten to within five yards of a hog or a bear, and you can't even get your bow vertical. There's, it's impossible. You can't even get it horizontal. You have trouble dragging it from behind you. That's how thick it is. And the bears love that stuff. We do a lot of blood tracking. And then when the bears go in there with a leash dog, which is how I run my, my blood dogs, it's almost impossible to follow the dog through there. You have to lay on your belly and just snake behind the dog with a short lead. It's tough. Um, the guys that have hunted Alaska, you would, if you've hunted the, the coastal Alaska, think of the alders. Um, the alder thickets of uh, coastal Alaska, that's pretty much what it's like. It's, it's that thick. You, uh... <laughs> you only make the mistake of trying to navigate one in the dark once. Yeah. And then you, you plan, you'll go a mile out of your way to get to a hunting location to, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, cause you can't get through them quiet and y you can't, it's almost impossible to keep your bearing going through one in the dark. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's it literally so will blank out. If you get the right <clears throat> type with some conifers above it, it almost gets dark inside of there. That's, that's how thick that stuff is with the canopy over your head. Bears love it and love to bed in those roadies, especially if they're benched roadies on the side of a hill with some moisture in a creek nearby, creek, river, something like that. You're going to find those uh, those bears are going to bed on those on those benches right over that water. So and so that's interesting because when as I was saying when we first started talking to. Uh, and I've talked about this on the on the podcast. So for anybody that didn't hear that episode, I'll cover it real quickly. I shot a bear last year, a very large bear, um, made what I think was a really good hit. I'm not going to go into great details about why I know that bear died, but I know the bear died, but the bear literally went 40 yards and went right off of a cliff uh, down into the, the Amicalola River. And we spent a day, me and a buddy of mine spent a day 
trying to figure out what happened to this bear. Um, Hold on. Let me stop you there now. I'm going to publicly scold you for not <laughs> calling what, who is, in my opinion, arguably one of the best tracking dogs in the United States and North America. Yeah, I know. And, and, I, and, I, so, and I'll tell you in, in my defense, I'll tell you why I didn't. But I will say I agree with you. I've, <clears throat> I've watched that, that dog on multiple trails. And the dog is so good that when he finds the animal, he knows he's found the animal. And he will get, I've seen him give the tails. And you and I both have ignored it on one occasion and the deer was there and we spent another two hours looking for it. And he was like, well, you want me to find another one? He, he knew the, but he knew where that deer was at. Yeah. But anyway, because of this, the way this one, I knew it went into the water and I just, I, we never could find a place where it came out of the water. I'm confident that it never came out of that water. I, and that's the only reason I didn't call you. I don't, I don't know what you could have done, Jerry. It yeah. took me and Brandon at least an hour just to get down to the water because of where this thing, I mean, it was straight down. Yeah, it's rugged, rugged terrain. <clears throat> um, and without being graphic, when, when, a, when, a body, when, a, when a body expires, certain functions happen. And that happened eight feet from the edge of this water. I, I mean, I know the bear died. I know where he died. So anyway, we couldn't find it. But yeah. what I'm get what what I was going to say was as we are navigating because the bear goes straight down this this cliff, two hundred foot at least. Brandon and I couldn't do that. We had to go. We had to kind of zigzag and and make our way down as safely as we could. And in doing so, we were going through the whole side of this thing is covered in those rhododendron. Uh, and I want to say it was probably four to five different beds that we found just slick almost greasy looking um some of them up under uh some there was one oak that had failed that had two under it um there was another one where it was a rock outcropping and you could see where there was a little bit of shelter and you could tell that there was a bear bed in that and then there were some that were just you just saw it there and was like that's a bear bed right here in the middle of this the rhododendron here was only probably maybe six foot tall but really thick just really thick so that's why I was saying I learned more about bear habitat just on that one outing than I probably than I've than I've learned in ten years. Yeah, I learned a lot tracking. I've tracked. When I say tracking, I've used blood dogs. That's blood wounded animal recovery dogs for bear, deer, hogs, turkey, all that for thirty five plus years, and tracked in the thousands of animals. And you learn so much following a blood dog. Because a blood dog will tell you things along the way, especially a good one. And um, just by the luxury of numbers in Canada, we track so many bears. And it's not uncommon for us to track three or four in the morning. Um, you get to see, he'll take you places that you, you never would probably go on your own. But just by virtue of following those bears, some are likely wounded, but we'll track them two or three miles to make sure that they're not you know, going to, succumb to their injuries and you get to see cool bear caves and, and beds and and how the bears like to live when they're wounded and then when they're not um so it's it's a neat experience you know, following a dog through the woods and oddly enough i guess we should give him due credit we're talking about the dog's name is bear dog bear dog bear. <laughs> yeah uh, um, and he he is i mean he I've, I've been on a couple of tracks with him and 
I know that one we covered like one one point eight miles that night, mm-hmm. pitch black dark, out in the middle of nowhere. And I can't tell you how many times it was probably three or four times you said, I'm not sure if he's still on the on the track or not, and then you'd oh nope, there's a speck of blood. And yeah. <laughs> generally speaking, anytime I've fault or I if if I question his his uh, abilities, he just gives me the look, and I'm, I'm basically <laughs> regu- regulated now. To I'm just his driver. Right. Um, I just get him to where he needs to be because he didn't ha- doesn't have a driver's license. The rest is up to him. Um, he is an amazing dog. That's probably a a subject for a different show altogether because people and, and I do want to do that. It's tremendously underutilized. Blood tracking dogs in the U.S. I now are legal in forty states. So. Um, if you're not using them, you, you're missing out on a lot of a lot of uh, success and excitement. Well, and I don't want to go down that rabbit trail because I do want us to do another podcast on that. We've talked about that. Um, you know, there's a, and I'm guilty of this myself. There's a there's a, a I think there's a pride factor with some of us that you know well, I've I've trailed deer my whole life and I'm, I'm and I feel like I am a pretty good uh, uh, tracker on 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 wounded animals. But bottom line is a lot of people out there have not been doing this their whole life. Um, and the dog will remove all, a good dog will remove all doubt. That's correct. And why not? I mean, you owe it to the animal in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's pretty common um, without going too deep into it. It's pretty common for people to say that if I've tracked a deer a quarter mile or a half mile, that if he's gone this far, he's probably going to live. Well, that's just simply not the case. We recover deer every year that have gone one to two to two and a half miles and then die of their wounds. So you just can't do that. And it's it's not a matter of ego. It shouldn't be a matter of ego because no matter how good a tracker you are, I don't care if you're the best in the world. If there's no blood and no tracks, can you follow that deer or that bear or the hog or that turkey? You can't. A dog can without any blood. They don't need a drop of blood, not even a drop. And they'll follow that animal. And then... You know, two two miles down the road, you can say, okay, now I think that deer probably lived. And so, and you've done everything that an ethical, ethical hunter can to recover an animal. <clears throat> and I, I think I, in some situations I have been able to track deer with, and when I say without blood, I'm talking about going maybe 10 yards and, and, and being able to find blood again, following tracks and so forth, but... I know what you're talking about. You're talking about there is no blood. Or, yeah, there's there, no blood. Or there's blood so small that like that night when we were doing it, just every now and then you'd get lucky and see a little flex. Somewhere. Where I'm, what I'm discussing here is no tracks, no broken limbs, no no splashed water, nothing, zero sign a blood dog can follow that animal. Just like just like he's, if, if you double lunged him and come out the bottom, it, that's what it feels, that's what it's like when you're behind a blood dog. He can follow it without any hesitation anywhere. Um, he's recovered bears at 3.6 miles um, that were that were wounded. Wow. 3.6 miles. And then probably two miles of the last two miles of that without any sign whatsoever. Uh, me questioning him the whole way. Another guide questioned him, are you sure? There's no blood. Are you sure? I said, hey, you know, I'm not, but he is. So let's follow the brown dog. So I'm a tremendous resource out there. 
Um, in Georgia, there's a tracking network that you can call. Many states have that tracking network. But, again, we'll hit that on another podcast down the road. Somewhere. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Now, I will say there's there, – so one thing I will say, and, and it goes back to that ego thing, um, there are some very weird scenarios, too. And you and I have talked about this sitting around campfire. But I personally know before I launch an arrow from my bow, the broadhead is as sharp as you can get it. You, I mean, it is it – is, surgically sharp for all intents and purposes i've hit deer exactly where you're supposed to hit them no no without a doubt that that deer is dead and not have blood no and whether it's from you know the, the, we've talked about you know did the deer was the deer exhaling as you took that shot did it there's all kinds of things that can happen but if you perforate that diaphragm whether you hit the lungs or not, there's a good chance that animal's going to suffocate and die. But how far can a deer can cover a lot of ground in 15, mm-hmm. so 20 seconds? Um, so anyway, well, I, that's a conversation that I do think yep. we we'll spend an hour talking about, and, and I think it'll be really useful. So everybody, stay tuned for that one. But I'm going to pull you back to the bears for another five, ten minutes, or so, and then we'll wrap this up. So we've covered up to the point that you know they they're in the corn, they leave the corn, they're eating, you know, they're in the treetops. Then they come down out of the treetops. Are they huntable late season after the acorns are, for all intents and purposes, gone? I mean, we have uh, chestnut oak acorns that I don't think anything will eat other than worms. But you get to a point in early, most of the time it's around early to mid-November, that the acorns, for all intents and purposes, are gone. So what are you doing at that point? Well, when... Back up just a touch. When there are a lot of acorns on the ground and you just don't know what to do, when you just get out there and you've walked seven miles that day and, and, and five miles the next day and you just can't find a concentration of bears, you need to find saddles. Saddles are important bear corridors. Um, they'll have those faint bear trails on them. Um, they're quite easy to tell that it's a bear and not a deer. But when you find the saddles, when all else fails, find you a saddle. I know uh, I've got a buddy that hunts a lot of saddles and he'll see two or three bears a day just passing through. The neat thing about hunting saddles is you have less of an opportunity to spook a bear. You're not sliding in on the bear. Bear's not sliding in on you while you're in a tree stand. The saddle, the bear is moving. So if you get downwind of that trail or you get up thermal from that trail, that bear is going to pass in and out of your life in a matter of 15 seconds because he's on the move from one valley to another. So it makes, it makes it less likely that you're going to spook him because he's not around you that long. So that's another good way to do it. Um, late season, all the acorns are, once the acorns are gone, bears become, in Georgia, extremely difficult to hunt. It's almost needle in a haystack kind of stuff. Um, luckily here, that's about when the Georgia deer rut kicks in. <laughs> I bail out of those mountains and I'm in central Georgia chasing those big whitetails. Because it's not fun anymore to me. Um, I don't ever want to take a bear by happenstance where I'm just walking and he's walking and we bump into each other. I want to be able to, to hunt him and not be a luck thing. Um, so I just transition out of that. But I don't hunt them and um, when the acorns are gone, I just I don't hunt them anymore. Um, and then in the late season, it's still, you can hunt into January, but your chances of killing a bear then have got to be less than 1% or 2%. It's very, very difficult. Um you're better off just to chase hogs at that time of year. 
somewhere in South Georgia or, or somewhere wherever you can get them. So you you mentioned the saddles, and I'm gonna I've got a, a bit of a theory here, so I'm gonna ask you because you've done a lot more of this on the bears than I have. But um, and the the first bear that I took a shot at this past year that that maple grew up before my arrow got to him. Um, I hunt a lot of just natural travel corridors. So it's hunting terrain. It's it's hunting the saddles. It's hunting, you know, uh, terrain pinch points, those kind of things. And I know deer trails for what deer trails are. But at the same time, I've also seen where it's just a trail. It's not necessarily a deer trail or a pig trail or a bear trail. Everything's using it. I've sat there and watched trails where, or I've, I've actually had trails that I've hunted that I've had bears come through or a bear come through on occasion, deer come through on occasion, pigs will come through on another occasion. It might be raccoons that are coming through. It, but they're all using the same trails, and you can tell these trails because year-round they're pretty much just void of any vegetation or, or leaves or anything. So, I mean, do you hunt anything like that if you see it, or are you really just focused on you want to know there's a high probability that a bear is going to be at this spot today because? Yeah, well, the – the deer, I don't hunt the deer in the mountains of North Georgia. I'm not sure I'd even shoot one if I saw one up there because they're, they're, there's just not a lot of them. Um, so I don't even really concentrate on their sign. When I say up in the mountains, I'm talking about in the actual elevation of the mountains, not the foothills like where we're at now, Dawson right. County. Right. It's a different story here. In the farmland, there's plenty of deer. Um, up in the mountains, the, the bear saddles, when you find them, they can be anything. Um I think if a man's going to start hunting up there, you can either, if you want to, if you're old school and you want to run the topo map in your pocket, that's fine. I use a bear, I mean a uh, Montana, a Garmin Montana GPS, and I don't know how anybody hunts without a GPS in their hand. It is the most valuable tool in the world for chasing bears. I'm trying to, you know, define elevations. One of the things I didn't say, and this is incredibly important, is if you find a situation where you have bears, let's just say you find five white oaks on the southeast side of a small ridge and there's a creek nearby and you find bears there, try to find that spot again somewhere else. Get on your GPS or on your topo map. Try to recreate that that southeast exposure with a nearby creek that's got this angle of, of inclination on it and you won't believe how many times you'll go to that next place. It might be, you may have to hit three or four spots that are almost exactly the same, and you'll find bears again. It might be the same bears feeding there, or it might be a whole other bunch of them a mile away. Um, but that, that's, I can't believe I forgot to say that earlier. That's an incredibly important thing, um, particularly in bad acorn years. Um, if you find acorns on, the, you know, on a particular um, a southerly exposure or northern whatever, Try to recreate that hunting scenario. It's unreal how uh, profitable that can be for you when you're chasing bears. So it's just like once you find that that combination, find other combinations that match that same thing, yeah. and chances are you're going to be in the bear. That's, that's right. Bass fishermen will really understand this. Yeah. Find the topography, find the temperature, which would be exposure. Um, but bass fishermen understand that once you find fish in a specific area, They'll sit, rather than just fan casting down a bank, they'll sit and look at that hummingbird unit and find, try to find, recreate this location. And inevitably, they're, they're going to be successful doing that. Um, don't hunt 1,000 acres for bears. Try to hunt 
inside a thousand acres in three or four or five acre areas. That's the most important thing I think people can do. They just try to hunt. You don't fish the find, whole lake. You, you have know? to find the four or five yeah, acres. That's it. Yeah. Find that five acres and then try to find it again somewhere. Yeah. You know. And and last thing I'm gonna you you said something there. I'm gonna go back to it because it's 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 one of those things that always amazes me. So you and I both are big fans of the Garmin Montana. Yep. And it's an expensive GPS. Um, but for anyone out there that's thinking about buying a GPS, it, it, I, there's no other re- GPS I recommend in that Montana. And they look, you know, I see these, they, you know, a lot of people, and, and I should say, you and I are pretty close to the same age. Uh, and as our eyes have gotten older, that big screen's awful nice, but I, I use my GPS a lot and I stare at that screen a lot and I don't see how people are doing it on these little one and two inch screens. <laughs> um, yeah. That big four inch screen is nice. Um, yeah. So sp- if, if you think about buying a GPS, spend the money, get your bigger screen. It's a little bit heavier as far as carrying it, but it's not, it's not much. The battery life on them is fantastic. The screen is fantastic. And being able to actually see the detail with with a good topo map on the GPS is is critical. I mean, you just can't do it on those little screens. Or I can't. I, yeah. I should say I can't. And, you know, the phones will do. Everybody's aware now that the phone apps will do a lot of it. But where we hunt, and I understand that before I say that you can't use the phone where I am, there is no cell service where I go. And I understand that you can freeze your maps before you go there and store them and all that. But I don't know where I'm going to go every day. So, But I'm not knocking the phone apps. Because there's some great ones out there. Around here, I use OnX and things like that. Those apps, they're fun, they're great. But but that phone's not going to do the 16 feet accuracy like the, the no, it won't. And it also there's just so many more features. I live in my guide service. I live by that Montana. I can find something the size of a car 10 miles off the coast of Florida mm-hmm. and sit on top of it with my Garmin Montana. Yep. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't want to spend the money. I could understand that. But if you want to use the apps on your phone, just get good with them. If you're going to hunt the mountains of Virginia or West Virginia or Tennessee, get good with being able to freeze your maps before you go. Because once you get out there and you don't have cell service, which as soon as I leave my house, my cell, my cell phone's out of service. So that's why I, I just trust the Garmin. And, two, I can hand that Garmin to any of my hunters. And within three minutes, I don't have to teach him. Right how to use it three minutes later i can i can say you are here this is where at this time i want you to walk to that spot and any hunter can pick that garment up and use it they're that simple and before i get to hate comments and the hate email and all that stuff i still carry a compass i've always got a backup but the compass is not going to do what i need that gps to do it just it's just no but but the compass will get me back if something happens to the gps i do appreciate those that have the compass and i have a compass in my phone i'm not old school I don't use paper maps, and I'm 50-something years old, 57 now. I don't use old-school maps. I don't use a compass. Y'all don't know where I am, so I can't get hate mail. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, if you've picked up a Garmin and you have it in your pack, you'll throw that compass away, or you'll at least put it in the back pocket. And I keep keep a spare. Like, I keep one in my my bino harness. I just always got it. And I do still use maps quite a bit. Um... But 99% of the time, if I'm using a map, I'm using it at a kitchen table where I just want to sit there and be quiet and study. I will say that I will study maps on a table, absolutely. 
for big picture, when I'm going into an area of the National Forest that I've never been in, it allows a big picture view. But the second I step out the door, I, I never go back to that map. But it's absolutely maps. Don't anybody get mad. It, maps have their place at the kitchen table. People, here's the thing, Jerry, I've learned doing this podcast. People are going to get mad about something. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, but they'll quickly learn by listening to me. I cannot be offended, and I never intend to offend anyone, and my feelings can't get hurt either. You can say whatever you want. I was a fireman for 31 years, so my, my I don't even have feelings anymore. <laughs> well, Jerry... This has been fantastic. I've actually learned a few things myself. I may try to put those some of those into practice. I'm, I'm sure other people have as well. Uh, I think that's a good point to, to wrap this one up. and We'll see if we get some feedback. Maybe we'll do a, a bear 2.0 in the future or something and get into a, a little bit deeper on some of these details, all right? All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, man. Have all a right. good evening. Thank you.